Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, May the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. A couple of years ago, I was joined by broadcaster and author James O'Brien to discuss his very entertaining and engaging book, How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong. Since then, he's published another book with the similar but different title, How Not to Be Wrong, The Art of Changing Your Mind, which comes out this week in paperback. James, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Hugh. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is a book which, on the face of it, uh, has quite a similar format. You've got extracts from conversations on your LBC radio show. You've got your thoughts on various topics and subjects of the day. But it's actually quite different under the surface. It's a much more personal book. And and it's entirely about what I'm wrong or what I have been wrong about, whereas the last book was uh, a bit clever sometimes in, in um, disabusing people of various bonkers notions regarding all the sort of hardy perennials of of public controversy so no this is entirely about me and it's and it's much more personal than anything I thought I'd ever write because I've I've been through experiences in the last two or three years which I at risk of hyperbole made me realize that I was not the person that I thought I was so I wasn't the person who could never write anything personal it turns out I felt enormously liberated by becoming a person that can. Well let's jump right into that because you jump right into that in the book itself. The first section of the book is about, in some ways, it's about personal trauma and it's about finally coming to terms after decades as an adult with the consequences of that personal trauma for you personally. Yeah, so, I mean, what happened was that one of the people I love most in the world got really properly poorly. And I approached it in in the same way that I'd approached everything else in life, every other challenge in life, with, with what I thought was a pretty reliable set of weapons and tools and that had, I make no bones about it, had served me incredibly well in the past. I could sort of argue and debate and cajole and, and bully and use verbal tricks and dexterity to, to, to pull off almost anything, you know, in my professional and in my personal life. But it was naffle use in this particular context, and by trying to use this toolbox, I, I made everything worse, you know, I, I, I made everything worse. And I I knew that I had to do something different. It never occurred to me that I had to be different, but I, I went along to therapy um, at my wife's suggestion because, uh, well, I went because I was desperate. I think she suggested that I should go because she, she was aware of, of how much pain I was in, let alone how much harm I was doing to an already fraught situation. And and it came out very, very quickly that I had, since pretty much being beaten quite regularly at, at prep school, it's not as simple as that. There's lots of other stuff going on. You know, boarding school itself has issues of abandonment, even when you see it as an act of love and sacrifice from your parents. But the effort I'd put in from about the age of 10 to construct what we call on this side of the sea, the stiff upper lip, um, 
had had been completely bogus and and all the effort I'd put into convincing myself that these men and later monks hadn't hurt me hadn't done me any harm at all and that it was character forming and it was as I say all stiff upper lip stuff was a complete fraud which I never would have discovered I'd have carried on not necessarily happily but I'd have carried on living this adrenaline fueled life of of epic emotional highs and lows and picking fights wherever I laid my hat and all that kind of thing but as soon as I started talking to 10 year old me which was something the therapist encouraged and something which, again, at, at first I just thought was ridiculous. So the idea that you have a conversation with an imagined incarnation of your 10-year-old self. But I can't exaggerate how quickly and how profoundly everything inside me shifted when I did start doing that. And and the, the amazing thing is I am quite evangelical about this. So do... do um, apply the brake if I start getting a little bit a little bit too <laughs> carried away the amazing thing about it is that we, is that when you make these change when you become what they call your authentic self as opposed to a survival personality um, then you do manage to make changes to the world around you that you would like to see but but not by telling other people to change or by telling situations to change but by interacting differently and that prompts people to interact differently with you now, when people talk about people, when people who've experienced corporal punishment, or to give it probably its correct word, you know, legalized physical violence against children, um, and they talk about the impact they had on them and their in their own lives, I mean, one of the responses, which I think is the one that you gave for many years, was it didn't do me any harm, um, so why should it do anybody else any harm? Now, obviously, now you believe uh, probably correctly that it did do you any harm, but how much did it shape? the man you were as a young man or as a man up until a few years ago? Well, I didn't just think it wouldn't do other people any harm. I would argue, once I sort of fell into this bizarre career as a a sort of professional opinion holder, I I would argue sincerely, this is a crucial point, that that it was good, that it was healthy, that, that, you know, it was the only language some children understand and I should know because I used to be one of those children and so everything in a way follows from there because it, 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 it's I mean it's a schooling and I know that corporal punishment is not confined to public schools or, 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 or you know fee-paying schools but latterly it was certainly to still be formally beaten you know queuing up outside the headmaster's study and having to say thank you sir at the end of it in about 90 as, as recently as 1983 1980 for that was very much confined to the to the fee paying sector and I, I think in part it was to create a generation of men and almost always men that could run the empire you could almost turn on and I always thought I was quite emotionally literate here and in many ways I was you know it's it's it, but there, there was this other roadblock inside me where I never examined emotions because that would be weak I never admitted to inner pain because that would be defeat to the people that had caused it. If you pushed me, I'd push you back twice as hard. And that meant that somehow the original push in the first place had been good for me. Because if you hadn't hit me, I wouldn't have knocked you out, if you see what I mean. In my case, almost always intellectually speaking, obviously, not um, not physically speaking. So it, 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 as each layer peeled away, you'd look at all sorts of areas of life. And I'd have this tension because this is what my career had become and I 
without being immodest, I, you know, I'm quite good at it. I'd achieved the last time we spoke, you know, I was on a crest of a wave. I still am career wise. And it, it hinged, I thought, on that combative fight or flight um, personality type. And, and it, it, it doesn't, it didn't. So yeah, an awful lot of who I was. And, and I wasn't like a, an unpleasant person. But the best way to describe it is is living life with your fists up and, and being constantly ready. When you're a child and adults abuse you, in my case, physically and emotionally, never sexually, but, you know, I'm not sure that the, that the distinctions are that stark. And you lose trust. And in order to sort of reconstruct yourself or in order just to, to, to create a carapace, a suit of armour, you end up telling yourself lies. And, um, and, and that was shocking to me to, to see it that way around. Absolutely shocking. There's a, there's a kind of paradox which which you, you you note in the book, which is that this process of going through therapy is going on at a time when, ironically, your career is taking off in a way that you'd hoped it would for many years. And now it's finally doing it. And it's doing it, I think it's fair to say, on the back of the pugnacious personality which developed in the previous you. And that meanwhile, the what you described just there yourself is your authentic self is emerging. So what's going on? How do those two things play off over each other over the last two or three years, four years, maybe? It, I mean, I, it's not for me to say, but I, I think the radio programme has become a lot mellower. I know I have become a lot mellower. And it's not, I mean, the weird thing is, particularly I suspect for anyone in Ireland who's ever heard of me, is that it, it's, it's the clips that generally go halfway around the world, the viral clips that changed everything for me career-wise, just happenstance, right place, right time, right technology, right right colleagues and, and they were never fully representative of the nuance and the breadth of the show but here's the thing I think that's changed it wouldn't matter what the subject was if you if you came on my show and made me feel threatened in any way intellectually threatened um, threatened in terms of knowledge threatened in terms of understanding threatened in terms of shame if, if I thought you were teasing me or you were successfully taking the rise out of me I, I, I'd come for you like you'd killed my family. And, and that was all I ever knew. And so I've still got that capability. If, if, if someone really deserves it, I, I'm never going to like take my foot off the pedal when I'm talking to, to, to racists and, and, and bigots and, and homophobes and the rest of it. But, but, you know, I would have done this on an argument, a conversation about whether or not teachers should have tattoos. I, I'd have come out with all guns blazing in a in a conversation, and we've talked about corporal punishment. That probably is still an area where I'd, I'd I'd reach for at least half of my old arsenal. But tattoos, tattooed teachers, what the hell was that about? And then vegetarianism. And I see it, I see it still. I'm sure you do. I see people in in this profession. Um, again, I think more over here than 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 in Ireland where you've always had a little bit more respect for the, for the thoughtfulness of, of commentators as opposed to the pro- provocativeness, I think. Just a bit. I mean, you've got we've all got our share of both. But I see people here with, with bigger names than mine who I used to look up to. And Twitter's been an astonishing window. People who are 10, 20 years older than me, they've edited national newspapers, you know, they've been around the broadcasting block. And I see it. it, it it's like looking in a in a mirror through a time machine you know it's how can you be getting so upset about Meghan Markle how can you be so furiously stubborn about um cancel culture or vegetarians or 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 or, you know whatever the 
or even Nicola Sturgeon recently, the way that they spoke about her and the way that they wrote about her or the stuff they commissioned, it was as if it only counts as an engagement if you are striving to completely destroy the other person. And, and as I and I would do that to callers. And as I say, that's fine if you're talking about white supremacists or Donald Trump or a couple of other issues still in the news. But it's a bit bloody stupid if you're talking about tattoos and vegetarianism and, and, and a host of other things that I would always have, have, have gone in all guns blazing. So where does that market demand, because I think that's what it is really, for that sort of always dial it up to 11 uh, kind of approach to every subject, even subjects that is it's absurd to get overexcited about, like like tattoos and teachers. Where does it? Where does that come from? Is that driven by the market or is there something else going on with our politics and our culture? That's a brilliant question, uh, which I don't obviously know the answer to, but my thoughts would be that the, the, the tactics matter more than the opinion. So what was the breakthrough for me professionally was the fact that I've always, almost always, pursued an essentially liberal agenda, but I had the toolbox of the tabloid bruiser. And I guess that gladiatorial combat is a spectator sport. You know, the ancient Romans didn't pile into the Colosseum to watch two chaps having a, you know, a a friendly joust with balloons on sticks. They piled into the Colosseum to see people try to kill each other. But of course, in, in ancient Rome and in ancient Greece, you'd also draw an enormous crowd for a a symposium between two philosophers. And, and I guess, at risk of sounding incredibly pompous, the, um, the, the, the shift from the, from the Colosseum to the symposium is, 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 is part of the, the journey that I've been on. But it sells tickets. So the phrase I always use, more so in the first book than in, in How Not To Be Wrong, is that it's much easier to sell tickets for the ghost train than it is for the speak your weight machine. So alongside the gladiatorial model... People pay to be frightened, you know. That, that, that's literally what a ghost train does. They, they pay to get on the rides that will make their tummy turn over and their adrenaline pump. They don't pay much for the, for the speed away machine. They certainly don't queue around the block for it. And I think that is, in, 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 in the UK, but in England especially, that's a very much post-1969 media model. It, it, it coincides almost completely with Rupert Murdoch's purchase of the sun and the, and the subsequent pollution of public discourse, which has seen almost everything turned into a, into a fight to the death, which is how, even as a liberal, I could thrive in that environment, albeit it's a rare position I occupied because most of them are, are you know, typical tabloid, hang them, flog them, and, and we're back to the hardy perennials of, of public discourse. So the commoditization of anger and fear and ultimately hatred... Um, is 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 the easy answer to your question and i think my role in it was being a a performative diffuser of that kind of explosion i I was like a professional extinguisher of blue touch paper but i'd extinguish the blue touch paper with just as much flair and um possibly arrogance as the people who had lit it in the first place is there a thing i know i was guilty of this when i was a kid 
uh, or younger than I am now, much younger than I am now, which was I used to love debating. Yeah. And the reason I used to love debating was to win debating. Yeah, yeah. It didn't really matter which side it was on. I quite liked that thing that you had in formal debating, Bingo. where you were just given a side and you had to argue it. And then sometimes, actually, I uh, took a perverse pleasure in, in arguing and winning is it on perverse? behalf of something which I knew was completely wrong. Same. Is it perverse, that pleasure? I mean, because that's, that's like Maybe being... Not. Yeah, that, that is like a skill set that you're developing. You're sharpening your wits. You're sharpening your tools. You you know, you're. I've got a 15 year old who's who's a bit of a. Well, she'd hate me to say a chip off the old block, but she's she's good at this as well. And she we were talking the other day about how it's more enjoyable, and you work harder and you reach for things that you would never reach for if you were arguing something you 100 percent agreed with. I listen. I've always believed in that argument up until relatively recently. But I suppose I look at people, uh, including your own good prime minister, yeah. and also the kind of bloviators and opinionators who, and you, you write about this in the book. People who've got opinions on stuff, yeah. um, which they know absolutely nothing about. You know, middle-aged white guys talking about black kids getting stopped and searched, or people expressing their completely untethered opinions on yeah. one side or the other of the so-called trans debate. That kind of stuff. Yeah. No, I mean you're, you're 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 bang on, and it is. Yeah, that's the part of the book. There's like three strands in the book that that emerged while I was writing it, like a plat. And that's the bit that really shocked me is is that, I mean Johnson in particular, but David Cameron as well. This it, I, that that's what I you know that, that that's what we're talking about. That's what we were trained to do. That's what we convinced ourselves was normal. Johnson would write two columns, wouldn't he? want to remain in the European Union, want to leave. And he'd be patting himself on the back for being such a brain box when he did that. And, and I would have done at one point in my life as well. Maybe not on Brexit with Boris Johnson, but that principle of being able to serve up two papers, identically um, impactful, beautifully argued, rhetorical flourishes galore. Who are you, though? What do you believe? Is that great line in... Um, Hamilton, which I will now misremember about, you know, what, what do you stand for? If you won't stand up, what do you stand for? Or something like that. And, and that, that's the nub of it in a way. So I still don't think there's a, an, an unavoidable and inevitable harm to, to, the, to the skills of rhetoric that we both enjoyed as, as young people and which um, my daughter enjoys now. But it's when that personality which you put on like a coat, when it becomes who you think you are, I think the problems start. When you actually don't know what you believe anymore, when you are arguing that it's fine to hit children and you win the argument because you're brilliant at arguing, it doesn't make it fine to hit children. And so that, I don't know where the, where the crossroads is. I, I don't know where the Rubicon is, the, the, you know, the healthy exercise of rhetorical skills becomes a, a survival personality or an inauthentic personality. But I know I, I definitely crossed it many, many years ago, and now hopefully I've crossed back. But one of the things I do know, uh, partly because I know some of the people uh, involved, uh, is that the vast majority of opinion columnists ultimately go mad. Like, you know, really, really insane. And that can manifest itself in a, in a number of different ways. But very often the way it manifests itself is they start, you know, they start getting high in their own supply and yes. it drives them to increasingly extreme positions, you know. Um, yes. Maybe because they have to come up with something new every week. And maybe. it's just really not very good for your mind. Well, and also, I don't want to sound sympathetic to, to some of the people that we're both thinking of now necessarily, but there's a pressure there. Because nobody wants to read 
not every week at least, uh, you know, a, a, an article that's full of, well, on the other hand, an opinion column as written by a BBC presenter would probably be the best way of putting it. Well, of course, some other people might say this. We're back to the ghost train, aren't we? And, and, and you know, that idea that if you're the fellow selling tickets for the ghost train, you're never allowed to contemplate the possibility, A, that you're not really doing a public service. You might actually be damaging your customers' mental health, your customers' emotional well, I mean, your customers' lives. And, and B, I've got to do it again next week. And, and that, I think, it's not just the escalation. It, it's the, it's, the, it's the, the, the inability to climb down that goes with it that causes, I think, the anguish and the problems you describe. So I was reading Private Eye earlier, and they have a, uh, a historian... Private Eye, very good at picking up on this stuff. It's probably the one area where I don't think Private Eye is a paragon of journalistic virtue. So they had a fellow who, who'd been writing until relatively recently about what a heel Johnson is, what a cad Johnson is, what a moral bankrupt he is. And, and Private Eye, because they watched this stuff closely, picked up on the fact that after last week's elections, he wrote a piece about what a legend Johnson is and maybe all those Puritans and prigs had been wrong all along. And Private Eye correctly pointing out, well, until, you know, a week last Tuesday, you were one of the people you're now taking um, pot shots at. And, and, and yet, if he'd done it honestly, if he'd said, I used to be one of the people that thought Boris Johnson's moral corruption was the measure of Boris Johnson the man and Boris Johnson the politician, here's why I've changed my mind then A, I'd have read that with much greater interest than him pretending that the past had never happened. And B, he'd probably lie a bit straighter in bed at night. And, and in many ways, that's, I think that might be what my whole book is about, actually, in, in, in that if you are minded never to climb down, if you're emotionally and professionally and personally committed to the idea that, that being wrong is, is shameful, being wrong is weakness. Like, you know, you don't write a book called How to Be Right by accident, do you? And, and yet, if you can admit when you're wrong, I reckon the rest of it's okay. I reckon that, and that, that is why it's a book about all the things I've been wrong about. I would have gone mad, I think. I think that's the whole point. That's why that was such a brilliant question. I think I probably would at some point have gone mad. I think I would have become one of the people we're all thinking of now who have this astonishing, furious inability to, to acknowledge any vulnerability or wrongness whatsoever. I'm pretty sure I, I was on that road. Okay, well, that, that, that is interesting. One of the reasons I, I think that the, the, the psychological pitfalls and defects of, of, of opinionators are, are interesting is, is, is this, way back when I was idealistic about the internet, probably about 15 years ago, and people talked a lot about citizen journalism and how people were going to, you know, democratise access to information and all this kind of wonderful stuff. And what nobody realised was that there'd be no citizen court reporters or citizen data reporters or citizen... There'd only be citizen opinion columnists. And now there's millions and millions and millions of citizen opinion columnists who are kind of subject to the same sort of psychological pressures that we've just been discussing there about the professionals. Yeah, I mean, I, do their, is it their, it's livelihoods as well, isn't it? So they're, they're just as financially required to keep the, keep the wheels turning, keep the fires stoked as, as traditional media um, opinionators are. It, I, is it that different, do you think? I mean, is it... Is I'll put it, it this way, you know, you know, your racist uncle 
you could still kind of keep the family intact because you only saw him a couple of times at Christmas and hopefully, you know, you bailed out before he was on his fifth drink. So his opinions never came up. But now he's on Facebook and your mother's getting embarrassed. This is uh, not my mother, by the way. But your, uh, <laughs> your anecdotal mother is getting embarrassed and yeah. the whole thing splits up the family and he's getting angrier and angrier because people aren't talking to him on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We're kind of familiar with the process. We are. And actually, I'd probably reach for vaccines before I reached for racists on this. And some of the calls I've taken in the last year is that one of the beauties of the phone-in is when you get the question right, even if you're handling a topic that you've done before and everybody else with a microphone has done a hundred times. The beauty of the job for me is searching for that question that opens up windows and doors that, that you haven't managed to open before, even though you've been discussing the same broad topic. And when I asked people to ring in and tell me about how someone they loved had been affected by vaccine disinformation and by coronavirus hoax conspiracy theories and by 5G Bill Gates Farragos of nonsense. That was an astonishing seam of, of really poignant and emotional testimony. And it, it plays directly into what you've just described. It was it was indeed not my racist uncle, but even more importantly, my, my beautiful uncle, my lovely sister, my ex-boyfriend, because we had to break up over this, my favourite work colleague, and they have ended up believing that the moon is made of cheese to coin a phrase, and they believe so passionately that the moon is made of cheese. And they're so evangelical about A, trying to convince everybody else, and B, then alienating and distancing themselves from anybody who fails to be convinced that it ends up defining every aspect of their existence. So if we take that as the extreme example, and then your racist uncle is about here, I guess, on the on the scale, God knows how many millions of people are, are here and, and have been Gaslit, I'd use the word groomed by the commoditization of misinformation, culminating in many ways in, in, in what happened to Liz Cheney this week in America, where, where, you know, the third most senior Republican in Congress gets slung out of her job by a secret ballot of her colleagues, all of whom know she's telling the truth when she says that Donald Trump didn't win the election. But they know that their votes depend upon 60 million Americans or however many it is that still believe the big lie. And so, you know, they have been lied to not by Facebook, they've been lied to by a president. But without the social media doing the disseminating, um, it couldn't have happened. So, you know, if the most powerful man in the world uses those tools, we can see right in front of us today what the impact would be when your racist uncle uses them or when whoever it is that is trying to benefit financially or I don't know really just just politically from making people believe things that aren't true then it is it's different to what you asked though isn't it because the, the, the making people believe things that aren't true isn't quite the same as making them hold with your toxic opinion but I guess the impacts are probably very similar I guess the, the effect is I mean, poisonous. A lot of this ties into various theories of, of human psychology. I mean, you mentioned earlier on what happens to people when they're called on something, which they regard as being sort of, you know, core to their belief and their identity. They tend to lash out or perhaps go even further yeah. in that direction. And that's a kind of a description of, of cognitive bias, um, I suppose. I, mean, I, I should say one of the things about the book is I both 
enjoyed it enormously and I was slightly disappointed in it. And, and the reason I'm slightly disappointed is my fault, not yours. It's just I'm kind of fascinated by this cognitive bias thing at the moment. We had, a, I don't know if you know, Raphael Baer, who does a, a podcast called Politics on the Couch, and he's been exploring that with some quite experienced, you know, you know, fairly sophisticated psychologists. And they, they talk about this all the time. So anyway, the reason I was just disappointed, I might as well get this out, is because nearly all of your transitions, your, your recognition whether it be through your own personal explorations of your own past or the lived experience of people who talk to you on your talk show, take you from a position which is generally to the right of the middle of the particular political spectrum and takes you to the left. And I think that's great. That's fine. And listen, to be honest, I agree with most of those positions. So everything's fine and it's hunky-dory. But the ones that are really awkward, the ones that start people feeling itchy and scratchy and uncomfortable and are therefore maybe a bit more intellectually provocative are the ones that go against the grain in some way. I don't know what you'd think of that. No, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I was the only case study that I had. That was that was the whole point of the book. And I guess it, the, the two areas where my dissonance is, is clearer, uh, oddly enough, given how this conversation began, fee-paying education, where I have to just admit to hypocrisy. It's not really cognitive dissonance necessarily. It's more it's more just a good old-fashioned hypocrisy and then on vegetarianism knowing that it's wrong now as i do it's obviously wrong to eat animals to kill animals for food but i'll be having steak for tea so these are not epochal deeply profound social issues I, 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 and i don't know i don't know that i maybe i wouldn't have been able to to make the changes that i've made if i was down the rabbit holes that you're describing if i was holding views i mean it's a bit like that thing David Baddiel wrote about the was it a Muslim lad who found out he'd been adopted from a Jewish family or it was the other way around and he was he was very sectarian he was very much defining himself by his it's quite significant I can't remember which way around it was I guess that's the whole point of the piece isn't it so he defined himself by not just his identity but his opposition to the identity that he then had and I don't think I could have had anything like that in the locker you know I've, I've had quite a secure life, uh, unconditional love as a child, all of the things that I think create the characteristics you describe. I, I, I was I was thankfully spared. So yeah, you want you want the you want the the homophobe who comes out as gay, don't you? That's that's a bigger story. You want you want the the massive racist who finds out that his great grandfather was a slave, but you know the genetic. Progression has, has removed all evidence of that from his own face. You want the person who is a huge anti-Semite and then finds out that his own grandparents fled the Holocaust and and and, and hid their Jewishness, and then that wrestle. Yeah, and I, I suppose the other thing is that I'm, I'm uncomfortable myself personally with it's the kind of the Groucho Marx thing. If I find myself at this club, um, I, I want to I immediately start asking, what the hell am I doing here? And who are these people? And um, there's that concept on the on the progressive left of allyship, which really implies so if you believe in X, you should also believe in Y and Z and in A, B and C. And, you know, sometimes it breaks down the the the. Um, really unpleasant debate over over trans issues is yeah. kind of an example of 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 that right now. But 
I'm uncomfortable with it, you know, that, yes. you know, and while I'm, I don't necessarily, I certainly don't go down the, you know, down the line of thinking that free speech is being destroyed in universities. I think there are issues with free speech in universities and there are other things like that where I tend more towards the centrist dad position, I suppose. It, it, well, trans, as, as I write, for me is an outlier and, and it's been hijacked by people who want to be able to perhaps to pick the most extreme example in the news today here, people who want to be able to deny the Holocaust. And they've sort of hitched themselves to the free speech wagon created by the trans debate and by all the... I, I, I mean, I'm about to say issue, but I got a tweet this morning when I was mentioned it on the radio in passing saying, I am uh, trans, please don't call me an issue. And, and, you know, that, that pricks my conscience, even though I, I'm not, I don't hold a, a strong position on this yet because I'm so confused by it. But I guess there's two things going on. There's the political and there's the social. And what you've just described is the social. And I think that's fine. I, I think a broad coalescing of liberal values or people, liberal people with liberal values is, is more or less inevitable. Um, and there'll be some disagreement, like you say, but generally speaking, if it's going to be, you know, whether you're looking at Kant's golden rule about do unto others as, as you would do unto yourself, or whether you want to make it Christian and talk about love thy neighbour as thyself, just just that idea of a shared and equal humanity underpinning everything. I think that's all right. I'm not troubled by by too much um, Groucho Marxism on that uh, on that front, but. The other kind of Marxism, when you've got the the political equivalent of that, which is judging a political act not by its content, but by the allegiances of the politician, that that for me is much, much more problematical. That that where, you know, two politicians, Diane Abbott does something and then Boris Johnson does exactly the same thing. You you have to treat them exactly the same. Now my cosy liberal circle can be just as guilty, I think, or, or almost as guilty on this, of attacking Boris Johnson and then perhaps defending, I don't know, Tony Blair or defending Diane Abbott. And, and, and uh, that's scary because that, to return to Trump, I think that is a large part of the undermining of objective truth is, is you know, he even said at one point, didn't he? It was like channeling Orwell. When, when he said, don't believe what you read and see, just believe what I tell you. And, and that's, pretty close to 1984 and the evidence of your eyes and ears party's final most terrible command so I, I i i don't know whether it's the right approach but i don't worry as much about the coalescing of values as i do about the denial of objectivity i think that's what i call footballification actually the that idea, was exactly what i was going to say footballification yeah. which you 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 coined is a, is a very good good phrase for it but there is um it it seems to me a tendency sometimes on the progressive left even in terms of slogans like you know we trust the science and they don't that there's a kind of presumption that uh you know cognitive dissonance is a problem on the other side yeah and you're right not on the progressive side and that's just not true no definitely not definitely not and and you know it, it, it's I mean, it's, it's not even a very intelligent thing to say we trust the science because, you know, what, what does that mean? The majority, the consensus, you need to be more specific. And I guess perhaps 
perhaps the escape from what you describe is in the detail. It, it, perhaps it is about being able to say what you mean when you say I trust the science. Otherwise, it's a slogan that could be as meaningless as the fellow on the other side saying that he doesn't trust mainstream media, whatever that means. So that's the bit of the job that's never going to change for me, is, is pinning people down on what they mean when they use certain words. So most recently, on the one side of the debate, it would be words like woke and words like cancel culture, and they get thrown around. You wouldn't believe how quickly people fall apart when you ask them to actually tell you what they mean by it. And then, yeah, on the other side of the debate, well, when you say you're following the science, what exactly do you mean? Are you just parroting someone you admire and feel aligned to politically and socially um, without really stopping to think about what they are? So that, I guess, is the common ground when people are employing words that they don't really understand. Um, and regardless of whether you agree with the position, the problem of people parroting words that they don't really understand is, is not unique to either side. And, and you're right, the progressive left, liberals, call them what you will. There's an intolerance there um, of, of dissent, of, of, of argument that can be almost as, almost as pathological as, as what they profess to despise. And, and that's why, I guess, talking about stuff and and I always feel slightly insulated from this accusation because I have a phone in show so you know it's three hours a day anyone can ring me take me to task on on anything I've said or anything I believe but we're back to the central thesis of the book which is maybe they could have done that but maybe it wouldn't have made any difference at all because I'd have been too busy bashing them over the head trying to win then I was wondering about whether they might actually have a point and whether they might actually be be right but I, I know it's a bit pat but I do like the the basic e- equality the fundamental equality of humanity if, if I start from there and we're disagreeing I think I do have the moral high ground and I think I will always believe that. Can I, can I ask you a last question actually probably partly based upon your experience of three hours a day engaging with the with the people of the, of, of the United Kingdom in all their... In and all Ireland their now, getting very big And Ireland, Ireland as well. RTE are Can on we... the run. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask you about actually politics as of this week. The last time we talked, Brexit hadn't happened. Boris Johnson wasn't the Prime Minister yet. A whole bunch of other stuff. Donald Trump was still the, the President of the United States. You had elections over there last week. A lot of people talk about the that the traditional coalition of the centre-left and progressives as represented by the Labour Party, a coalition between, um, I suppose, urban progressives and working-class heartlands that, that used to support Labour, that, that that coalition is breaking down um, and that it's going to be really hard to put it back together again. What do you think of that? I, I, I think it's possible. I, I think with the, the more time that's passed since those results came in last week, the less persuaded I am of that, not least because of the situation elsewhere in the UK and, and, and the, 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 what, what's been called the incumbent argument, isn't it? And the vaccine and the, and the virus have combined with very, very public leadership from politicians that has translated into electoral success for all three of them, you know, for, for um, Mark Drakeford in Wales, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland and Boris Johnson in England. But there's a bigger problem for the English left at the moment. And, and I don't know if it's new or whether like so much else, it's just a new iteration of an old model. But they are being defined by their enemies, not by themselves. So Blair's written a very good essay for The New Statesman this week, in which, which has inevitably been read by almost everybody as saying exactly what they wanted it to say. But I, I, I think at its heart, it's saying that, that this 
again back to that dreadful word woke, the Labour Party is being perceived as being led by the so-called woke left, the people that you know want to defund the police or tear down statues. And that is a huge existential problem if it takes root. Because for two reasons. A, it's simply not true. I sit in studio, I sit in production offices and trying to find a prominent Labour politician to not just who's prepared to publicly propound, but who honestly privately believes the stuff that people have been told by English newspapers every day the Labour Party now represents. You, you try and find a prominent Labour MP, or half a dozen, because we could probably find one or two, who really believe in defunding the police or tearing down a statue of Winston Churchill. And uh, the producers charged with finding those people have got the hardest job in the British media at the moment. And, and that, that, that's reason number one. It's simply not true. Reason number two is obvious. It, 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 it's electorally toxic. You go to Hartlepool and, and tell normal people that, that the party, the other lot, that you can vote for. You can either vote for me, and I really care about jobs and hospitals and schools, or you can vote for the other lot who really care about tearing down statues of Winston Churchill and defunding the police game over isn't it so so the challenge for Labour as ever perhaps is in a very very right-wing media environment the challenge is finding a way to define themselves rather than being defined by this for me rather sick symbiosis between very right-wing politicians now and and I mean, decades old, very right-wing newspaper owners and editors. So now that you've written about how to be right and how to be wrong what, where do you go from there? How to be happy? <laughs> that's an excellent answer. We leave it on that. Actually, I think that's the perfect answer. I couldn't, couldn't do better than that. Listen, uh, James. Thanks very much as always for for joining us on the podcast. Thanks also to our producer Jennifer Ryan. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes dot com. We'll be back again very soon. Have a good weekend. 